We are back. And in this hour, we are paying tribute to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. because this is the official holiday of MLK Day. It is the 95th birthday of the iconic civil rights leader. And I am so grateful to be in conversation in this hour with my good friend, my brother, Dr. Carlos Hill, who is an esteemed professor at the University of Oklahoma, one of the nation's leading historians and experts on uh, the Tulsa Race Massacre. Welcome and thank you so much, uh, Dr. Hill. We have been in this conversation on various occasions, but I just thought today, a day when I'm in Palm Springs, California, uh, leading an MLK Day tribute on behalf of the thousand plus clients that I represent in Palm Springs who are seeking restitution for having their homes burned and demolished uh, simply because they were black and brown folks living in the heart of downtown Palm Springs and they didn't fit the part, look the part, or play into the uh, narrative that Palm Springs wanted to build itself as, which is a white spot, a uh, playground for the rich and famous. And I, I can't help but be uh, reminded of this passage and this quote from Dr. King. I just want to read it to you and we'll get your reactions. Uh, in 1968, Dr. King proclaimed, when we come to Washington, he's talking about the March on Washington, in this campaign, we are coming to get our check. Now, for some, they say this was no metaphorical check, but a stark reminder of the debts owed, the reparations for centuries of racial injustice that remain unsettled. All right, Dr. Hill, was Dr. King talking about the same reparations you and I have been talking about over the last year or so, or was he talking about something different? No, he's certainly talking about the same reparations, Ariva. And by the way, thank you for having me on today uh, on Dr. King's day, where we really center him, center his life and his legacy, and really talk about really what his legacy is about. Um, and I would just say before I answer your question more directly, um, you know, Dr. King's legacy was rooted in justice, right? First and foremost, justice. He spoke the language of justice. He spoke the language of love and compassion, right? And he spoke the language of peace, right? Uh, and so justice, love, and peace is what Dr. King centered in his activism and his civil rights activism. And because of that, reparations, right? Repairing the harm done for centuries of racism in the form of slavery, in the form of Jim Crow, in the form of lynching, right? Dr. King was about America. When, when Dr. King talked about reckoning with the past, he was really talking about getting Americans to care about it. Right. Confronting and reckoning with the past is understanding one's relationship to that past and caring about it. Right. And so Dr. King, in my opinion, was trying to position Americans to care about. Right. The history of slavery, the history of inequality in this country and understand that that there's a debt. Right. That's owed. I want to just say one last thing about Dr. King and reparations. Um, if Dr. King were alive today at 95 years old, I think he would be a proponent of reparation. And what we have now that we didn't have when Dr. King was alive 
were are studies that have documented the amount of repair, quantifiable damage done to Black people throughout the diaspora who were who are descendants of enslaved people who experienced slavery over 400 years. Uh, scholars have tabulated this past summer, June of 2023, that if, if, if descendants of slaves in the Caribbean, in the Americas, are paid reparations, it would be to the tune of $130 trillion. Right. Now think about that. $131 trillion for 400 years of slavery. That's both quantifiable damage done during slavery and after. And so that is the basis of Western, modern Western economies. And that's the debt, right? That is old. Do that because it's not just about the $131 trillion old. It's about us caring about that <laughs> and doing something about that. And Dr. King would be pushing us uh, ever more to do something about that. You know, I'm so glad that you gave us that number, that quantifiable number, because, you know, Dr. Hill, one of the things you often hear, I often hear uh, since I've been in this struggle, in this fight as a civil rights lawyer is, oh, my God, you know, there's no way to quantify it. Oh, it's just too amorphous. It, it, you know, it, it's too difficult to put a price tag on and to put a number on it, which is a, a really kind of an absurd argument to be made by economists, particularly those in America, because we know no matter what happens in this country, we are always trying to do some kind of damage assessment. If there's a tornado, if there's a flood, uh, you know, if there's a hurricane, the first thing we do is send in a team to do that kind of damage assessment, to come up with a number, everyone recognizing it's not necessarily a perfect number, but it is the best estimate from these experts who make their living, you know, making these kinds of calculations. But when it comes to reparations, one of the arguments I frequently hear is it's not quantifiable. So I'm glad you have come with receipts uh, to let us know that, no, there are economists respected well uh, you know, well-known and, and well-regarded economists who have been able to do the very work that folks say can't be done. Absolutely. And I think, Ariva, when it comes to Black victims, right, of atrocity, of natural disaster, those are the responses that we tend to get, the indifference. We can't figure it out. Right. But, they get awful stupid, awful fast. Right. And, you know, but when it comes to the survivors of 9-11, right, and the victims of 9-11, even though it was excruciating, and I remember those conversations, it was excruciating uh, for them to put a price tag on the lives of individuals who lost their lives, the 3,000 individuals that lost their lives, but they did it. Mm -hmm. Because the families needed them to. They needed support. They needed help in transitioning to a new life without that person. They recognized that they weren't going to be perfect. They weren't going to be able to give them everything they lost. Mm -hmm. 
But it wasn't good enough to say we can't figure it out. Because that would suggest that they didn't care. Care. No, that's so important. You know, and in this country, in our judicial system, in our legal system, in our civil legal system, that's what we do. You lose your leg. Now, a million dollars, a hundred million dollars is not the same as you having that leg. But we have determined in our system that money is a way, as you said, of indicating responsibility. So if you're a big car manufacturer and you put a faulty car on the road and it kills people and you're held accountable financially, that's saying you are accountable for for putting that faulty product on the road. Uh, It says when that president of that company gets up and apologizes and says, we're going to do better, that you recognize that you have harmed people's lives and you need to do something to make it better. And that, yes, money doesn't cure all you know, harms, but money can, as you said, cause people to be able to do those things, maybe in the loss of a leg, buy you a van that you can drive where you don't need a leg, you know, put a ramp on your house so that you can get in and out of your house uh, because you can't navigate the steps. But somehow, as you said, when it's black folk involved and it's this conversation, people get brain dead. You know, we don't know. It's too much. It's going to bankrupt us. We hear that often. Dr. Hill, about the bankrupting. Oh, that number, that $131 trillion. Oh, my God. You know, where is California? Where is New York? You know, we're in a budget crisis. We're cutting our budget. How dare you ask to add to a budget when we are having to cut vital things like education and, you know, food programs? Why are those arguments inadequate and why do they just ring hollow? They ring hollow, as we've been mentioning, because they only get used in relationship to racial minorities as it, you know, as it relates to indigenous people, black people um, and other racial, um, racially marginalized groups. But when we talk about the black experience, I'm a historian of lynching and racial violence. I must say that we're not talking about just the lack of political power and the inability to make reparations happen. What we're talking about is the issue, right? The core issue of the black experience as it relates to black white relationships is the indifference to black suffering, right? Slavery is about the indifference to black suffering for profit's sake institutionalizing Black suffering for profit's sake. There's a deep indifference to Black suffering in this country that we've never dealt with. And until we do, and that's a part of the conversation of reparations, to be very honest with you. Why do we, why are we indifferent to Black suffering dating back to slavery? That's the deeper question. And I know Dr. King would want us to heal around that question, right? Because if love, if excuse me, if anti-blackness is rooted in hatred, then the antidote to that would be Dr. King's brotherly love, right? Mm-hmm. So it's the indifference of Reva, the indifference to black suffering. And you know, Dr. King talked a lot about love, Dr. Hill, but it wasn't this passive, you know, notion of love. It was an active love. It was a verb. Love is a verb 
Love is action. Love is power. Love is exercising that power. And, and I want to just give a big shout out uh, to two groups here in Palm Springs. One is uh, the California Stonewall Democrats of the Desert. And the other is the Brothers of the Desert. Both of these are LGBTQ groups that are in the desert. Palm Springs has a large LGBTQ community and they are powerful. They have a five-member city council. Four members of the city council are members of the LGBTQ community. And mm -hmm. these brothers, these this gay community, they showed up. We did a symbolic march today from a park that's on Section 14, the land, to a United Methodist Church where we held an interfaith service. And when I tell you members of both of these groups showed up in I mean, some of the largest numbers I have seen in this desert since I've been working down here for a year and a half. Uh, and their pastor, one of their pastors of a church, uh, he and his wife, straight couple, pastor a church where 80% of the members are gay men. He said he understood that the rights of gay people were inextricably tied to the rights of black people and that the rights that gay people in this country experience today is because they stand on the shoulders of black folks and on the shoulders of civil rights icons like Dr. King. And but for the work of Dr. King, they would not enjoy the rights that they enjoy, mainly the right to marry whom they love, uh, you know, the rights to live where they want to live, work where they want to work, uh, you know, pass their property down to their loved ones and, and have the rights and privileges that you and I have as, as you know, you assist gender black man, I'm a cisgender black female. And so I thought that was, you know, I just want to thank them publicly because not everybody is willing to stand up and to be in this fight and to be in this struggle, because we know when you call out America in the way that you and I are doing right now, you get a lot of pushback, you get a lot of hate, you get a lot of uh, vitriol directed uh, towards you. So I just want to thank the Brothers of the Desert and Stonewall Democrats of the Desert for having the courage, particularly on MLK Day, to do what Dr. King would have done. When we come forward, we're going to continue this conversation about the legacy and the life of Dr. MLK with esteemed historian, Dr. Carlos Hill. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. We are back and we are paying tribute today on Martin Luther King's 95th birthday. We are acknowledging his life and his legacy. Now, many Americans know that the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King advocated for desegregation and racial equality, but fewer of them, Dr. Hill, are aware that reparations for Black Americans was key to his vision. Uh, this is a quote from Dr. King. No amount of gold could provide an adequate compensation for the exploitation and humiliation of the Negro down through the centuries. Not all the wealth in this affluent society could pay the bill, yet a price can be placed on unpaid wages. This is a, a quote in the 1964 book, Why We Can't Wait. Uh, it goes on to say, the payment should be in the form of a massive program of special compensatory measures, which could be regarded as a settlement in accordance with the accepted practice of, of common law. 
Now, MLK's words make clear that the federal government is culpable for denying Black Americans the fruit of their own and their ancestors' labor, uh, a living legacy that did not end with the passage of the Emancipation Proclamation. Why do you think, Dr. Hill, that part of King's legacy is buried? Uh, and even those scholars that profess to know his work, that quote him frequently, uh, rarely go to that part of his, his you know, his his whole approach to civil rights, his philosophy on civil rights. Uh, in fact, what we see are folks trying to use Dr. Wor uh, King's words about a colorblind society uh, in a way that would be anti-reparations, you know, anti-DEI. Uh, how has his words been distorted over the years? Right. Um, is, you know, in the quotation that you shared, Dr. King is unequivocal about his support for reparations for those who would utilize his legacy uh, to talk about colorblindness, to talk about how he would be opposed to DEI today. That kind of quote really demonstrates that Dr. King was committed, right, to justice through reparations. And I really want uh, the audience to understand why reparations isn't writing a check to a Black community for $131 trillion, even though <laughs> if that were to happen... Yeah, let's, let's not would, make everybody nervous. Okay. Yeah, it, it would be deserved. It would be deserved. And it's possible... It is possible for the Western countries of this world to pay what it owes historically Black people, Black African-descended people who experienced slavery and their descendants of. It's possible, but do we prioritize? Do we care? Dr. King, I think, would, would argue that healing is at the core of repair. Healing, if we don't decide to care about paying reparations to survivors, to victims, right? Then ultimately we're foreclosing, we're cutting ourselves off from the conversations that are needed to heal with those communities. And so it's not about the check, it's about where we get to and having the conversation about the, because we, we might argue through that process, the number might come out to be much more than that but we won't know unless we have those dialogues. Hell, it might be less than that, what people are willing to accept, but we won't know unless we have the dialogue. And so the dialogue is crucial for the healing. And so that's what we gotta keep in perspective. And I'm so glad, you know, you brought up 9-11 as an example of how the government responded, how the government didn't hem and haw. There were no conversations about we didn't we don't have it. We don't know how to put a number on it. They just sprung into action as they should have because people were harmed because and this is your phrase because of no fault of their own. I'm quoting a great historian here, people. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so. They didn't ask any of those questions. They just figured it out. And another example of that, even more recent, is COVID. COVID-19 is another example, a, a, 
pandemic that swept through this country, that destroyed businesses, that claimed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. And people were suffering no, because of no fault of their own. And the government came together and decided that all of us would get a check. They decided how much that check would be. They decided those of us that own businesses could get a advance, a grant for our employees, wages that we weren't able to pay. People were getting $5 million, $7 million, $10 million from the government through the PPP loan process. And the loans were wiped out if you were able to submit the proper documentation so the government responded because there was a crisis that impacted, you know, the American people. So we know that this government has the ability. And why a $1,200 check? Why a $1,500 check? Not necessarily for some people that was a lot of money. For some people it wasn't. But the point was it was a demonstration of priority that people were hurting. And in this moment, we needed to give them something. And that's the amount they came up with. So it's really important, I think, that people understand this, the, the nonsensical and the disingenuousness of the argument that we can't figure it out uh, and that there's no way to put a number on it. But your point about the healing, I think, is so important because oftentimes, Dr. Hill, to dismiss this conversation about reparations, they try, they being those that oppose to equate it as a money grab. Mm -hmm. I posted a video on my Instagram page when Kathy Hochul, governor of New York, signed that piece of legislation that was put forth by Black legislators in the state of New York to create a reparations commission. If you had, when you have some free time and you want to laugh, go look at the comments. The vitriol, you just want to buy a Gucci purse. People telling me, Ariva Martin, get a job. Like me, I got nine jobs <laughs> telling me to get a job as if literally me. I mean, like a lot of people maybe need to get a job. I got so many jobs. I can't keep up with them. So but that was the, the response to that. Again, as if somehow black folks are out to get something that they're not entitled to. And it kind of not kind of it plays into the racial and the racist tropes, Dr. Hill, that we're lazy and that we just want a handout. Speak to us about that trope and how that gets, you know, intertwined in this whole conversation about reparations. Well, definitely reparations as a political issue, reparations for African-Americans, historical injury in the form of slavery, lynching the deprivation of citizenship rights, uh, the, the, the historical, true historical trauma, emotional trauma, psychological trauma from all of that is what we are talking about when we're talking about the repair, right? And so repairing Black historical trauma is very unpopular. By and large, because of the racism, we anti-black racism we experience, and the, the the cruelest form of racism, I think, is to to you try to use it right uh, in the interest of depriving victims of true historical injury 
of repair by arguing that they're lazy. No, for no other group, for no other group, would we talk about them as lazy for something that they experienced, no fault of their own, at the hands of the state, call them lazy for asking for repair. That is the height of anti-Black racism, and we have to call it out. Yeah, no, no it, it's remarkable uh, the way that this conversation gets uh, distorted and how people try to hijack it, like to try to reduce all of this effort, all of this work to being just about money when it is so much broader. And one of the things I talked about in my uh, speech today, my favorite, favorite, one of my favorite quotes from Dr. King is an injustice anywhere is an injustice everywhere. When we come forward, I want to talk about how the, the issue of reparations is so much bigger even than the repair to Black folks, that it how it is intertwined with the rights of people across this country, rights which we see being eroded uh, in this moment. Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. I'm in conversation in this last segment, and I've been in conversation all hour, this last hour with Dr. Carlos Hill. He is an esteemed professor at the University of Oklahoma, where he is uh, an African-American studies professor. He is also the author of three books, the uh, one, Beyond the Rope, The Impact of Lynching on Black Culture and Memory, uh, the second book, The Murder of Emmett Till, A Graphic History, and the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, A Photographic History. We are talking about the life and the legacy of none other than Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It is his 95th birthday. The nation is celebrating the iconic civil rights leader. And we're talking about what Dr. King would have said or done around the issue of reparations. I want to read something else. I feel like we're giving people a lot of history here, uh, Dr. Hill. Uh, MLK continued to advocate for U.S. government investments to address gross human rights violations and the systemic deprivation of Black communities toward the end of his life. In 1968, just weeks before his murder, Dr. King said this, at the very same time that America refused to give the Negro any land through an act of Congress, our government was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that it was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor. He went on to say, but not only did they give the land, they built land grant colleges with government money to teach them how to farm. Not only that, they provided county agents to further their expertise in farming. Farming. Not only that, they provided low interest rates in order that they could merchandise their farms. Not only that, today, many of these people are receiving millions of dollars in federal subsidies not to farm. And they are the very people telling the black man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. Mm -hmm. Ooh, that's some powerful stuff by Dr. King. Seems as relevant in 68 as it is today. But Dr. Hill, talk to us about why that statement and why this issue of reparations is so much bigger than the repair to black folks. That statement suggests to me that Dr. King understood 
that this is a bigger issue. This is issues that unions should be concerned about. Gay people, women, other people that have been oppressed in this country, because if they come for us or if they refuse to do right by us, you are next. Absolutely. And that's why Dr. King built coalitions, rainbow coalitions, poor people coalitions that were multiracial at the end of his life. He was arguably bringing Americans, white Americans, Latino Americans, Black Americans, Asian Americans who were experiencing economic uh, destitution or just poverty, bringing them together in Washington, D.C. in April of 1968, right, to in a unified voice, right, to say as one as as one group, as one country, right, we deserve a better economic fate than we have. And so Dr. King was all about coalition building, multiracial coalition building. And, and this is because he and you you mentioned earlier, Dr. King had an active sense of justice. Right. And I will quote my dear brother, Cornell West. Cornell West talks about this very activist sense of justice. He says justice is what love looks like in public. Tenderness is what love looks like in private, but justice is what love looks like in public. And for Dr. King, loving people, loving poor people meant giving them a living wage, right? Mm -hmm. And so you're absolutely right. He tried to unite Americans around building a multiracial coalition to create a a living wage right, for working people, right? So he was all about that, and we should be remembering that on his birthday. So what, uh, Dr. Hill? So here's Dr. King opening the door, obviously, to end segregation and to fight for racial equality for Blacks, but by doing so, opening the door for labor unions, fighting for labor unions, fighting for wages for workers, opening the door for disabled people to have rights because, you know, prior to the civil rights movement, if you were disabled, you were locked out of this country. You know, you couldn't leave your house because the doorways were too narrow. You couldn't work on a job because people didn't want you in a job sitting in a wheelchair or, you know, using a hearing aid. So he opened the door for every group, women, uh, how come those folks aren't standing with us tall? I just gave a shout out to the, to the gay community in Palm Springs. So I'm not talking about those folks, but just across the country. Why don't we see more of those folks standing as allies in coalition with us as black folks, whether we're fighting in Palm Springs or fighting like DeMario in Tulsa, Oklahoma, or fighting in California or New York or wherever these reparations fights are happening? Where are our allies? As I, as I mentioned, Ariva, um, I really think this is a polarizing, maybe maybe one of the most polarizing issues in American politics, because when you say the word reparations, people immediately either bristle or they come forward. And so that just helps you to understand how much work one has to do just to have a conversation right in this country about uh, reparations. But that being said, we have efforts in California, in Illinois, and in other places, uh, in Virginia, right, that uh, Maryland even, that are really taking it seriously. We just don't have a national conversation. I'm not ready to say we're not willing to because it's happening in some places, 
but we're not having a we need a national conversation, not local conversations, not even statewide. Slavery was a national problem. Slinching was a national problem. Having statewide conversations are good. It encourages us to maybe that we can have the national one, but it's, it won't suffice. And so I think it remains a real polarizing issue nationally, given all that's happened with you. If we just think about uh, HB 1775 in Oklahoma and all the other bills, the climate for that kind of conversation right now isn't just, is, is it in right for it? How do we get back there, Dr. Hill? Because you're right, after George Floyd's murder in May of 2020, it seemed like the country was ready. Uh, a lot of these reparations actions, particularly the one in California, took steam, gained steam after George Floyd's murder. Uh, but since then, now we've seen, you know, a, a retreating uh, by even some of those folks who were ready to have that conversation or at least profess that they were ready. We see the attack on Dr. Claudine Gay. We see the attack on DEI by folks like Bill Ackman and, and Christopher Rufo and other, others. We see the GOP attack on many of these efforts. So how do we get back to Dr. King's dream? Uh, not just this, you know, watered down version they like that folks like to hold on to about this colorblind society, but Dr. King's real dream of economic equality, racial equality. How do we get back there? You know, I, Ariva, thank you for asking that. Uh, I am a remembrance worker uh, more than I am a historian, and my phrase, my rallying phrase is remembrance is resistance. Remembrance is resistance. So we have to make sure that we remember the radical king. My, my dear brother, Tavis Smiley, understands the radical king and has written about the radical king. We got to make sure that we remember the radical king that spoke about economic rights, that spoke against militarism, that fought for equality for all people, not just black people, but gay and lesbian people, women. That's the king that we need to remember and not the king that the conservatives want us to remember who would tell us that king was opposed to DEI. No, king believed that justice is what love looks like in public, connected to being in service to poor and working people. Vis-a-vis um, -vis the March on the second March on Washington, the Poor People's Campaign, and so that's what we have to remember to get us back to where we should be. Remembrance is resistance, Reba. That's a really powerful statement because uh, so many folks in this moment would have us forget. They would like for us to forget the radical King that you just talked about. They would like for us to forget the legacy and the work of Dr. King. They would like for us to forget the legacy of Black folk in this country and the work that we have done to pave the way for marginalized people uh, across this country. We are out of time. Thank you so much, Dr. Hill. Always, always a lot smarter when I spend time with you. What a, a, an amazing way for me to celebrate and honor the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King.